Habakkuk. We're in the book of Habakkuk tonight, as Gino said. If you could be a musical instrument, what would you be? I took an online quiz and discovered I'd be a trumpet. I'm sure it was all very scientific. I don't know what it says about me because they didn't explain it, but well, the reason I'm asking is that by the end of Habakkuk, we're going to be talking about stringed instruments, and I think we'll see uh, what we'll see will both surprise and encourage you, so tuck that in the back of your mind. place to start in Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4, where Habakkuk records the words, the just shall live by his faith. I wonder if he knew how deep those words were, how much would be written to explain them. Those seven words are so important that it takes three New Testament books to explain them. The words are quoted in Romans 1.17, in Galatians 3.11, and in Hebrews 10.38. Romans describes what it means to be just. You are justified by God when you have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. To be justified means that God declares you righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. Galatians describes how you are to live. Having been justified, you can live by the empowering of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And then the book of Hebrews teaches you about faith. The word is really steadfastness or faithfulness. A justified person living by the empowering of the indwelling Holy Spirit is faithful to walk in a manner pleasing to God. He or she perseveres looking beyond earthly circumstances to the certainty of Eternity. So the just shall live by faith. Now, the context in which Habakkuk received these words is a conversation he was having with God. As a sensitive and sincere prophet, he was wondering how long God would allow his people to sin and what he was going to do to discipline them. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen prey to the Assyrian Empire. God had spared the southern kingdom of Judah from Assyria in a miraculous way, but the Jews were still sinful and a rebellious people. And so the book opens in verse 1, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear, even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me, there is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. And so Habakkuk looked out at the situation of his people, recognized that uh, things were not good, they were, they were very sinful, and he wanted God to act. He wanted God to, uh, probably <clears throat> we would say, you know, Lord, bring revival. That's kind of what he was looking for, is for the people to repent and for revival to take hold. Do you ever wonder about our own nation, how long we can continue before God acts to discipline us? Uh, At the same time, though, that's what we do. We pray for revival, and we expect maybe a great wave of the Holy Spirit to sweep across our country, and, and that's what Habakkuk was looking for, but God's discipline of Judah was not at all going to be what Habakkuk was expecting. In verse 5, it says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, uh, these are the Babylonians to us, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places 
that are not theirs. And so essentially God says, I am going to discipline Judah. And if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe it. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And it's going to be astounding. I'm going to raise up the Babylonian empire and they will be my agent of discipline. Habakkuk was stunned. He couldn't believe it. He says in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, O rock. You have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? And so Habakkuk here says, yeah, I I hear you. I hear that's what you're going to do. But how do you use a non-believing pagan nation as an instrument of discipline? He didn't understand why God would do it that way and not just bring revival. And, and, and you know, we have our own ideas about how things should happen. And God, uh, in Hebrews, it says that only God, the Word of God can discern between the soul and the spirit. Only God knows how he can accomplish his purposes. It's not the reason why necessarily God used Babylon against Judah, but it is interesting to note that by being taken away captive to idolatrous Babylon, the Jews in the 70 years they spent there grew sick of idolatry that had led to their discipline. It was kind of an immersion discipline. They would be neck deep in idols and they would eventually see their folly. And Bible commentators often say that after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews never had a problem with idolatry again. They had other problems, obviously, Uh, leading up to 70 AD when the Roman army destroyed uh, the temple and burned Jerusalem to the ground. They didn't have any problem with idols. When I was a kid, my dad always threatened if he caught me smoking to make me smoke an entire pack of cigarettes at once, one right after the other. Anybody else have that? Some of you old guys. Today, that's called child abuse. (laughs) In my day, it was discipline. And, uh, you know, so... um, I never had to do that, but, um, it, you know, that it was kind of an emergent, <laughs> God bless you, brother, <laughs> that explains a lot, but uh, that, uh, that kind of immersion in the sin, you know, where you're just like, you know, you, you want to smoke, smoke, smoke another one, smoke until you're vomiting and you realize, you know, this is not a good thing. And uh, so God said, you guys want to, I've warned you and warned you and warned you, you want to have idolatry, I'm going to bring you to the land of idols and and you're going to live there for a while and uh, you're going to find out how ridiculous and terrifying this really is and you're not going to have this problem again. And so I'm not saying that's the reason why, I mean, God has his ways, but that is a, uh, that is an effect of the discipline uh, in the nation of Israel. Habakkuk retreated to wait for the Lord to give him, uh, we typically say to answer him, but the Lord already answered him. He retreated for the Lord to give him new perspective and greater insight into what he was doing. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. I like Habakkuk, even though he's kind of taking on God and saying, you can't do this. You, you, you know, you shouldn't look on the wicked. You shouldn't use the wicked. He said, he recognized that if this is what God was going to do, it was righteous. And he was going to wait for God to correct him rather than think he could tell God what to do. Now, ancient cities were walled 
they had watchmen posted on the walls in high towers to spot the approach of an enemy. Once the advancing enemy army was spotted, the watchmen would send information to messengers who would run throughout the city and the surrounding countryside sounding warnings for the citizens because most of the citizens in the cities were outside the walls of Jerusalem and so they needed warning to rush in and be safe behind the walls. Uh, Warfare consisted of long periods of siege as the enemy army encamped around the city, cutting off supplies to the inhabitants within, and then it was a waiting game. If If your defenses were strong and held, your wall was solid and there wasn't any causeway under the wall or any breach or anything like that, it was a matter of who uh, could hold out. Did the city have enough water and food? Or was the army going to run out of supplies or, or uh, you know, have to be drawn off somewhere else? And oftentimes in a siege, in that stalemate, <clears throat> something would happen back home. Uh, the invading army would have to break off and go and fight somebody else, and the siege would end that way. Other times they were well supplied, and they would outlast the inhabitants of the city who would eventually resort to cannibalism and things like that until finally the walls were breached, or many times the gates were just open because people couldn't take it anymore. Now, Jerusalem would be besieged. Her watchmen would spot the advancing Babylonian army. Messengers would run throughout the city and the surrounding countryside, sounding a warning for the citizens. I don't know whether or not Habakkuk literally went up into a watchtower. Uh, He was talking, though, about a spiritual watch either way, whether he did or didn't. He was using the imagery of the watchmen in the tower to teach at least two spiritual lessons. The first, as Israel's watchmen took their positions and saw the coming of Babylon, Habakkuk took his position as a spiritual watchman and saw the condemnation of Babylon. He said in verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. And so while God is explaining to him he's going to raise up the Babylonians, he also lets Habakkuk know that it's a temporary situation that he hasn't forgotten his promises to Israel. And then secondly, as Israel's watchmen took their positions and saw the coming of Babylon, Habakkuk took his position as a spiritual watchman and saw the coming of Jesus. He said in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that is a reference to uh, the future millennial kingdom when Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth and his knowledge fills the world. And so verse 2, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now the vision that Habakkuk was to make plain and entrust to messengers to publish throughout the city is what follows the condemnation of Babylon as a kingdom and the coming of the Messiah with his kingdom. Christians commonly use this phrase in other ways when giving the mission statement of a church or a Christian organization, for example. People say, well, we want to write the vision and make it plain. And that's an okay application in that we should be plain and simple in our explanations and descriptions. Just remember the original context is one of impending judgment and then the coming of the Lord. And so, um, you know, it, it has a, this very specific use um, about what Habakkuk was, was to do. Uh, verse 4, behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Faith, excuse me. This verse is in one sense the whole message of God's dealings with mankind. 
And that's why it's so important and quoted so often in the New Testament and books literally almost built around it. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. Mankind is proud in its rebellion against God. Men are born with sin imputed to them, with sin indwelling them. And then they commit individual acts of sin. There's none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, and, And sin comes from this lost, sinful heart of men. But the just shall live by his faith. You can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You can believe God and trust Christ for your salvation. You can be declared righteous by God who is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And then made alive in Jesus Christ, you walk by faith in his promises and prophecies. And so it's a, it's a little what we call microcosm of the greater whole. The just shall live by faith. I, if you're justified, you can have eternal life and walk by faith and persevere in faithfulness to the end. Now, Habakkuk did pray for revival in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shagayanath. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Uh, he says, O Lord, revive. The word can mean to make alive or to restore to life. Revival is making alive those who are dead. Those who are dead would be non-believers, described in the Bible as dead in their trespasses and sins. They're spiritually dead, and they need to be made alive by God. And uh, this aspect of revival is what we commonly think of as evangelism. And so when we talk about revival, mostly we think about a tent meeting or a revival meeting where uh, people are going to come to Jesus Christ. Revival is also restoring the life of those who are alive. These would be believers whose walk with the Lord lacks vitality. They have the Holy Spirit, but as Billy Graham would say, the Spirit does not have them. Leonard Ravenhill is quoted as saying, evangelism affects the other guy, revival affects me. Uh, And so uh, Habakkuk is praying for revival, uh, meaning people would get saved or saved people would get on fire for the Lord. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need revival. You need to be made alive by God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you might need revival. You might need to be restored to a walk that has vitality. Each of us should make Habakkuk's prayer our prayer. When you make Habakkuk's prayer your prayer, you notice three aspects of revival. In verses 1 and 2, Habakkuk receives God's word saying, O Lord, I have heard your speech. Then in verses 3 through 16, Habakkuk is going to review God's work on behalf of his people. And in the closing verses, Habakkuk rejoices in the ways of God, saying, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And so, um, you know, we don't want to overanalyze things, but that's a good view of what happens when you are revived. You, you receive God's word. We used to joke, we're in the Philippines one time on a missions trip, and, and we, instead of revival, we, would, we called it re-Bible because a lot of times, you, you know, you have to just come back to the word of God. It's a return to obedience to the word of God. Uh, I was reading something today um, it's a completely different subject, but the, the author was telling a story, and it was interesting. He was talking about uh, personal holiness, and uh, it goes with this topic of revival, and he, and he told this long story, and it's too long to tell, but uh, the, the gist of it was he's noticed that 
Christians today um, are getting more and more comfortable with sin. And his analysis is that since Christians understand that we'll never be sinless, we do, uh, instead of uh, being horrified at sin and thinking we can uh, not sin, we just try and manage our sin and do what he called damage control. And so, you, you know, the average Christian, he says, gets up and thinks, well, I know I'm going to sin, so I need to control how much sin I do so that it doesn't spill over into, you know, and, and, um, uh, and really create a mess for myself and other people. I just need to control the damage that it's doing. And he said it's a very different attitude than Christians in past uh, centuries have had uh, where they were pursuing holiness, knowing that you would, well, of course, there are some groups that believe you could achieve sinless perfection in this life, but for the most part, Christians have understood that you're never going to be perfectly holy in this life, but you should be pursuing it and not becoming friendly with sin. And so w- in order to do that, we really need to receive God's word. Gene uh, and I were talking later after the men's study this morning because there was some things that we covered in there and and I said sometimes I think we should do a reverse Bible study where we just say, you know, here's here's what the the verse says, what do you think it means? Because some stuff is just so absolutely clear it, it doesn't really need any commentary. And yet so often now when I talk to people, I say, well, what do you think that verse means? And they say, well, I think that it means this, but that's a pretty high standard and nobody can meet that. And so, you know, I, I, it's okay that I'm doing that because God understands. He, he knows that I'm a sinner and I can't do any better. Uh, and so it's a really kind of a weird thing that's happening with Christianity today. And so we need a re-Bible. We need to receive God's word. And then verse 3 through 16, to review God's work. You get excited again about what God has done uh, in your life and in the lives of others. Uh, you see, you know, the, the effects of a changed life uh, and, and how dramatic it really is. Uh, and then you know the ways of God, as I said, that he is uh, from everlasting and we talk a lot about what's going to happen in the end times and how we're going to be resurrected or raptured and all of that. And so all of that goes into this idea of revival. Uh, in verse 17, though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. You could not paint a worse word picture than Habakkuk does in that. Nothing of his normal daily life would remain. I mean, you know, this is an agrarian culture, and he basically says, we're not going to have any crops, and we're not going to have any animals, uh, and we're not going to have anything. We're, we're just, everything that we know is going to be gone in an instant. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. God saves, and that in itself ought to be enough to cause us to rejoice no matter our outward circumstances. Regarding those outward circumstances, Habakkuk said in verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. The King James Version, I think, uh, puts it in a more poetic way. It says, he will make my feet like hind's feet and make me to walk upon mine high places. You're to have hind's feet on your high places. The hind, of course, is a mountain deer. It's a picture of the sure-footedness of the deer, even when it is forced by enemies to escape to higher, rockier ground. Do you ever get freaked out by the mountain goats, you know, that are like way up on these, on these mountain tops, you know, where no one could stand? I don't know. How do they have balance to do that? 
You know, they're just kind of standing there, moving around. Even my cat, you know, I think my cat is pretty cool, and, but he falls all the time. You know, he's up, he likes to perch on the refrigerator. My cat gets up on top of the refrigerator and kind of, you know, glares at you and stuff, you know. But, but uh, if you, I almost got him to fall. I was like trying to do a little attack this afternoon and he like tumbled off the refrigerator, you know, and stuff. And the mountain, you never see the mountain goats fall. I mean, I've seen, I've seen all the Marty Stouffer specials and, you know, Wild America and all that. They never fall. And then they leap and they jump and they headbutt and they're on these little crags. And the rocks, I mean, the rocks are moving under their feet. And so this is the picture. He says, this is like the deer. You know, he's being, he's being chased by the predator, and he just keeps going higher and higher and higher where no one else can go, and no one can catch him. Do you ever see the movie The Bear, my favorite movie to reference? Remember The Bear? At the, the Bear makes them go up into the real high country, and at the end, he corners the one guy. Do you remember that scene? The guy's out there, and he turns around. He's on this tiny path that's maybe six inches wide, and all of a sudden, the grizzly is there, and he's just... You know, he does this whole thing, and the guy vomits. He's so scared. And then the, it's, it's great. I love it. And then the bear leaves him. You know, he says, hey, I just, I just want you to know who's boss. And at the end, the guy won't, you know, they're going to shoot him. And the guy says, no, let's just, let, you know, let's leave him alone. You know, he doesn't explain to him why. But, and so, you know, animals, they're not stupid. And uh, so he had this guy cornered. And so that's what's happening here. You, you're forced up into the high country. Danger is turned into devotion as you're forced upward, is what the writer is saying. As enemies pursue you, you must pursue God. The high places that trouble directs you to are yours. They're personalized. They're individualized. They're your high places. Habakkuk calls them my high places. They're yours. They are the ways God causes you to walk in and through to conform you more and more into the image of his Son, your Lord Jesus Christ. Now the book ends with that last musical notation, verse 19. It says, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. This third chapter was meant to be sung. The worship leader is instructed as to its arrangement, pauses, and instrumentation. And some commentators say that Habakkuk was part of the Levitical choristers in the temple, that he was either a worship leader uh, or a worshiper himself, part of the chorus. What are the stringed instruments? Well, the Hebrew word is neganoth. According to Strong's Concordance, excuse me, one of its meanings is a poem set to music. When you hear that word poem, I don't know about you, but I can't help but be reminded of the passage in the New Testament book of Ephesians that calls believers God's workmanship, where the Greek word is uh, poem. From heaven's perspective, Habakkuk himself was the Lord's neganoth. He was God's poem set to music. You are just as much God's neganoth, uh, his poem set to music. I dare you to tell somebody that they're a neganoth. They'll think you're not being politically correct or something because they've never heard that word. But uh, neganoth, I'm probably not pronouncing it right. You're God's poem set to music. Jesus is arranging the movements of your life in order to make your life a praise song to your Father in heaven. And sometimes that means he's going to have to force you into high country. Uh, that you're not used to, but uh, you, with the Holy Spirit, are just as sure-footed as any mountain deer and um, can withstand the assault of any enemy.